The message you are listening to is recorded by Campus Outreach for the 2018 New Year's Conference. More information about the New Year's Conference can be found at newyearsconference.com. Give her one more round of applause, please, y'all. Like... We want to frame this conversation around the fact of our identity as those who were enslaved in sin, born in sin, to those who have heard the gospel by faith, have believed the truth of that message. And we become what we see in Scripture the moment that we embrace Christ as Savior, a new creation. The old us is dead, and a new us has been given life eternal. That's a paradox in itself. But we still wrestle and struggle with what we call unredeemed flesh, which means the cravings and desires of our old life. Before I knew Jesus, I indulged in all kinds of wickedness and sinfulness. And when I met Jesus, all those cravings didn't go away. And so often I wrestled for years with the question, am I really saved if I still have a desire to smoke weed, to have sex, to steal? I still had a desire to run the streets. And so I'm sitting there thinking like, man, did I really give my heart to the Lord? Or is this all just self-manipulation to cope? And is it just something I'm doing for the moment? But I can honestly say, 22 years later, no, I legitimately gave my life to Jesus. And Jesus ain't quit on me ever since that moment on March 31st of 1996. And the reason I say that date specifically, man, is because what I didn't see a lot when I had just come to Jesus is OGs and big homies in the faith. I didn't see it. Like people would tell me in their 30s and 40s, oh, I didn't know Jesus until I was like 29, I'm like on my deathbed and God healed me and I've been walking with Jesus for five, six years. Like I rarely heard stories of people who gave their heart to the Lord at a young age, snatched out the streets. And even in my story, it ain't no fresh Prince of Bel-Air where I had a rich auntie and uncle to go live with. I had to live straight next to the dope house that I grew up from. Like, I had to walk the same block with all my homies on the same corner. And when we would drive home from church, my mom would just grab my hand and say, mijo, look straight, because my eyes were wandering to be out there with my friends. I lived a block away from the corner. And I'm sitting there, like, hearing all that's going on, and I want to be out there. And I'm 15, barely 16. I still got to go to public school. I still got to engage with individuals that sexually will throw themselves at you. I still got to do with homies that are like, where the weed at? That's how we say what's up. Like, I still got to do and engage with all these things. It did not go away. The world did not say, oh, hold up, y'all. Damon gave his heart to Jesus. Hey, let's let the homie grow in his faith. The world did not do that. So I had to constantly wrestle with an identity crisis. Who am I? I know what I say I believe and I read, but, man, the pages of Scripture rock me, but the streets is rocking me too. So where am I in the midst of all of this tension? And so that's why I want to share my heart as it relates to our identity in Jesus, as a big homie in the faith, one who is still learning, one who has made 
more sinful mistakes while I've been a Christian. Because in my life, I've been walking with Jesus longer than I didn't walk with Jesus. So most of the time, it was wrestling with guilt and shame as one who struggled with sin as a Christian. But the old me is dead. And a new me has been alive in Jesus for 22 years. So that's the framework that I want to just paint the picture as we engage with 1 Peter. So the first thing I want us to understand is that the people of God, those who have embraced Christ as Savior, we are the people of God. And he has made us holy because he is holy. And that in itself is something to wrestle and grapple with. So the first thing I think to help us understand that we've been holy is the first thing is we cannot dismiss the holiness of God. I know I've been talking about it, but I want to keep massaging that into our bones so that we can recognize, man, at the end of the day, our God is holy, man. So when we see in 1 Peter 2.9, it says, but you are a chosen race. That word, but, actually builds a contrast. But you, which means there is a whole other population of people that Peter is not talking to. He is not talking to people who reject the truth of the gospel, whether it's out of ignorance or willful rejection of the truth of God. He is talking to those who have embraced Jesus by faith. You are a chosen race. And this word chosen does not focus on the individual who was chosen, but rather the one who did the choosing. Because the one who did the choosing, as we read the scriptures, he chose us for his pleasure. It's not because of our physical attractiveness. It's not because of our giftedness. It's not for anything that we could contribute. It's not like an audition that, man, I hope he will select me. No, it's because it brought him joy to forgive you for your sins and wipe away your sin debt that you could never pay off. So often we think God is this bully that tortures us and then sends us to hell. That is not the God of Scripture. That is a man-made, fictitious, false God that we have conjured up to deal with our own desires of not confessing our sin. God says, I am slow in bringing my wrath. I am slow in Jesus coming back so that that will give you more of an opportunity to turn from your sin and be welcomed into my family. The only one that keeps us out of the family of God is us. It's not God. He got that open door policy that he's saying there is a clock that is ticking that the doors of the kingdom will close. But right now they're open so today can be the day of salvation. That's why this message should not stay in this ballroom. This message should be taken to every piece of real estate on this planet. So as we think about being a chosen race, when we hear the gospel, that we are dead in sin, that God has made the payment through Jesus' sacrificial giving of himself and the resurrection proved that God accepted that payment. When we hear that and say, I was once dead, I heard the truth, I now by faith accept Jesus as my Savior, at that moment we have moved from death 
to life. At that moment, we are guilty and then we are not guilty for all of eternity. At that moment, God the Holy Spirit lives inside of the people of God. So when he says you're a chosen race, he's saying you have an identity that is now holy. Because remember, holiness means separated from anything or anyone sinful. God has washed away our sins through Jesus. He has removed the guilt and shame of our sin, and he has welcomed us into the family of God. So we are holy because God has made us holy. And then Peter works through five nuances of this holiness. He says you're a chosen race. The reality of this word race expresses the one body of Christ. We're going to talk more about this tonight, but I want to intro it this way. Not one ethnicity has a monopoly on the gospel. Let me say that one more again. Not one ethnicity has a monopoly on the gospel. See, I grew up in an environment where there was all these different movements from Hebrew Israelites to the Morris Science Temple to Roman Catholicism to charismatic churches Buddhism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons. And then I would even engage with people from the nation of gods and earths. And I would talk to all these different people. And the one thing that was consistently told to me from those outside of Christianity is that being a person of color, a Latino, the Hebrew Israelites said, hey, you're from the tribe of Ishakar. No longer follow this white Jesus of the slave masters. And I was told from the nation of gods and earths, stop praying to a spook that don't care about you. Do for self, you are God. And I was told from the Morris Science Temple that my God is really Allah. And look to the Iberian Peninsula as life and flourishing and culture and beauty when the Moors of North Africa came and we conquered this area that your ancestors came from. We intermarried and we created culture, life, and beauty. Now take that example and juxtapose it with the Crusades and the colonizers that raped your Indian ancestors, that murdered the people or told them accept Jesus by the head of a spear or die. Now juxtapose, now you tell me, who is your God, this white Jesus or Allah? And I'm told all this when I'm 17, new in the faith. And I go to church and I see my friends with casual sexual relationships on Saturday, but then crying out for forgiveness on Sunday, but not caring about God on Tuesday, but then coming to youth group on Wednesday and surrendering their all. But Thursday, Friday, Saturday, they ain't got nothing to do with Jesus. And I'm like, man, this is, this is it? This is the laziness of who we are? Man, I would rather give myself and be disciplined to something that I believe in like these dudes on the block. Why ain't the Christians on the block? Went to the churches. I grew up in a neighborhood where there were 45 churches in one mile radius of my house and not one of them churches ever knocked on my door to share the gospel of Jesus Christ with me. Not one of them churches ever came to me and said, do y'all need food? Do you need mercy ministry? We know it's the crack house right there. Are y'all safe? Do y'all feel good? None of them ever came to my house. So when I embraced Jesus, not only was I in an environment where drugs and gangs and all the stuff we hear about in music was present, but there was also regular attacks on my faith. And I had to wrestle with, am I following the lie of a white Jesus on top of everything else? 
All that was wrestling with my identity. So when he says, you are a chosen race, here's the first thing we understand. Not one ethnicity has a monopoly on the gospel. Number two, there is no such thing as being colorblind. We're going to talk about that tonight. Number three, the reality of being a chosen race means that the family of God is one people made up of every nation, tribe, and tongue. That the power of God, the omnipotent power of God is greater than the walls of racism and segregation. It's greater than the walls of sexism and classism. When Jesus rose up out the grave, he obliterated every single one of those walls. So when we as Christians try to rebuild those walls of racism, sexism, segregation, and classism, we are working against Jesus. That's facts. And the reality of those facts lead us to understand, man, we family. We family. So the two extremes that take place when the church neglects us being one family made up of a multitude of gorgeous different ethnicities is this, ignoring the ethnic makeup of the Christian. And ignoring that ethnic makeup means I don't see color, I see you as a Christian. No, you do see color. Because real talk, the way you was looking at me tells me you see color. And the fact you feel you got to say that tells me you see color. And for me, I'm ethnically ambiguous. People are like, man, what is you, bro? You talk like you straight from the hood, but you say you Mexican. But real talk, if you wear a kufi, you look Arab. Like, what are you, bro? I get that all the time. And I, I take no offense to it because I'm like, hey, man, I, hey, I'm just out here, right? Like, I'm just, I'm just out here. So when people ignore, when they ignore the ethnic identity of other Christians, it leads those who are ignored to go to the other extreme. I idolize my ethnicity. I view the entire Christian faith through an ethnocentric lens. And pretty soon when we do that, then we exit Christianity and we go into an ethnocentric cult. So what is the answer? The answer is affirm the ethnic identity of every Christian. Because when you look at Revelation, which is God's Instagram feed, you see, ethnicity will be with you in the eternal state. So don't make an apology for your ethnicity. If you lack melanin and pigmentation, don't make an apology for that. Don't apologize because you're quote-unquote white. Don't apologize for that. Don't apologize for being black. Don't apologize for being Latino, Asian, Middle East. Don't apologize. God elected you to be what you are. Embrace it and let the body of Christ affirm it. And allow your individuality to contribute to the conversation that we have as the family of God. Because we are one people in Christ. But that oneness doesn't erase our distinctiveness and our diversity. It only amplifies it to say our God is so powerful that even people can't even cohabitate in this broken world in the same neighborhood without racial beef. But we have been saved by the same Savior because we universally as the human race have been enslaved in sin. Such was our reality. But when we embraced Jesus, our ethnicity didn't go away, our gender didn't go away, and our need for employment sure didn't go away. Why did I say those three things? Because Galatians 3.28 is often told, well, I, I don't see 
ethnicity because in Christ there is no Jew nor Greek. Okay, if that's true, if that's true and we all become opaque and nobody has any ethnicity, then that means the next part of that verse says there's no male nor female. So now what, what are we, an androgynous now? Like, no. When I embraced Jesus Christ as my Savior, anatomically I did not change. Ethnically I did not change. And show economically I did not change. Because he said there's neither free nor bondsman nor slave. Like, so, so with the reality of what Paul is saying in Galatians 3.28 is that the power of God transcends all the cultural divisions. And it brings us into a new reality of oneness because we are a chosen race. But in that chosen race still remains our ethnic identity, still remains our gender identity, and our economic situation. All right? You ain't going to ball out of control just because you are known by Jesus and loved by Jesus. I'm just trying to keep it a buck with y'all because there's false theology out there that says, no, confess it, receive it, and walk in your blessing. It ain't always going to happen that way. And then when people don't walk in their blessing and they get evicted, then they think, oh, Jesus don't love me. Wrong. That's a false Jesus that you were given. You were not given the right Jesus. So when we are a chosen race, we recognize holiness is what sets us apart. He says a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. A royal priesthood means we are fit for a king. King Jesus sees you as royalty. He sees you as royalty because you're part of the royal family now. One of my favorite preachers is Dr. Tony Evans from Oak Cliff in Dallas. Tony Evans has this illustration in his book called Free at Last. I would challenge y'all to get that thing, Free at Last. Tony Evans talks about this TV show back in the day, some of y'all may, may know it if you got Hulu or not. I don't know. But it's called Different Strokes. Okay, okay, about five of us. All right, cool. Y'all ride. Y'all riding with me. Different Strokes, here's the premise of the whole show. Rich dude lives in a penthouse, Manhattan, New York, has a maid, has two sons. She lives in Harlem. She dies. He adopts the two black sons from Harlem. It's a white dude. It's rich, balling out of control, has a daughter, right? So the whole premise of the show is them leaving the projects of Harlem to live in the penthouse of Manhattan. And they get into all kinds of little mischief, throwing balloons off the balcony and all kinds of little silly things because the whole premise of the show is what he's saying is leave the project mentality and have a penthouse mentality. See, when we were born dead in sin, the reality is we lived in accordance to the pattern of the world, but when we embrace Jesus, yo, Jesus is saying leave that old mentality because now you live in the penthouse. You have to unlearn the old ways of your sinful living. And I'm not equating living in the projects of sin, okay? I want to qualify that nuance. That's not what I'm saying. What Tony Evans was talking about is spiritual impoverishment and now walking in the spiritual riches that have been given to us in Christ Jesus. So we have to unlearn how to live the impoverishment and now live in flourishing as being part of the royal line. But we're also a holy nation. Holiness is our national identification. We're no longer identified as citizens of the worldly system that we read about in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1, 2, and 3. We are being sanctified. Let me hear you say the word sanctified. Let me give you an illustration of what the word sanctification means. So picture me, I'm dead in my sin. I hear the gospel. God moves upon my heart. I receive Jesus as Lord. The moment that I embrace Jesus as Savior... 
Now I am spiritually alive. God has said you are not guilty for all of your sins because Jesus took all your guilt on the cross. Jesus took the whole wrath of the execution sentence that you deserved. So there's nothing left for me to give. You are not guilty. That is called justification. I am justified in the eyes of God. Now he begins the process of sanctification. It's a two-part process. It starts with now I'm not affiliated with the world. I'm not a part of the population that Peter was not talking to. I am now a part of the population he is talking to, those who are part of the people of God. So instantly I am sanctified and set apart. And now it begins progressive, where it's every day, day by day, until I see Jesus face to face. And this, when I see him face to face, this is called glorification. When sin, my scars, my struggle, my pain, my addictions, all of that is gone because I am with Jesus for all of eternity. So sanctification is the day by day, minute by minute, walk by walk, breath by breath, walk with Jesus that he is helping you unlearn your old ways and learn his ways. Unlearn your old ways and learn his ways. And for 22 years, I'm still in that process. It is not an overnight thing. For some of y'all, the cravings of your flesh will never go away. But for some of you, the cravings of your flesh will go away. And praise be to God. But don't look down or don't think you're superior to those that are still struggling. The reality of this tension is that we're all still in this process. And this process of being sanctified only ends at one of two times. One, when Jesus comes back. Or two, when we die and enter into his presence. So everyone that knows Jesus now, that's alive and breathing, we are all in this process together. Not a single one of us has arrived at glorification yet. So we should be gracious and compassionate towards each other while we're struggling with our sinfulness. We are also a people of his own possession, which means he purchased us with his blood. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, it talks about how Jesus, through his shed blood, we have two things. We have been ransomed, which means bought out of sin slavery, and we have received forgiveness for our sins. Those two things were done according to the riches of God. Say according to. One more again, according to. Let me tell you how powerful according to is versus the phrase out of. Those according to and there's out of. I'm planting a church in Long Beach. The homie Brian Brian just became a Laker. Lakers are doing some things right now. So let's say that somebody said, hey, Damon, I'm going to get you in contact with LeBron because I think he needs to invest in your church plan. And I'm like, let's get it. So I roll up, meet King James, sit down, give him the prospectus. Say, man, there's a facility we want to get. It's going to cost $100,000, King James, $100,000 to secure this spot, renovate it, and make it ready so we can start holding GED courses and extension college campus right here in this neighborhood and all the things that we want to do. And he says, you know what? You won me over. I'm going to have my accountant send you a certified check Monday morning. I'm like, let me give you my home address, and you can stop by anytime you want to, brother, for some real tamales, all right? So we go there, and let's say Monday come, and I done gathered the whole church, right? And we sitting there, and I hear a knock on the door, and it's the postman. I'm like, what it is, baby? And he's like, here you go, sir. You need to sign? Oh, I'm going to sign for that, brother. Open up the check, and it's a check for $100. 
going to be like, <laughs> hey, Brian, Brian, you left a few zeros off this thing, bruh, spelled 100. I think we were 100,000 perhaps. But let's reverse the scenario. Let's go back in time. Sign for the check. Open it up. Oh, $10 million. Oh, oh, snap. He spelled million right. Okay. It's $10 million. Now, the stated need that I had was 100000 Brown Brown wrote me a check for $10. I know he being stingy because that brother done signed a multi, multi hundred million dollar deal for four years with the Lakers. Ten bucks? If he gave $10, that would be out of his riches, which means he's stingy. He's withholding. He knows he can meet the need, but he won't meet the need. But when he gives that much money that I said, it's way above the stated need. He's giving according to his riches. When Jesus paid for your soul out of the clutches of sin slavery, his blood was not a payment out of his riches. He knew your need and he exceeded your need. You can never out the payment that Jesus made for your soul. But let's balance that because that does not give you a liberty to now start wiling out and doing whatever you want. Talking about, I'm under the blood. I can do No, you can't. Because Romans chapter 6 says, sin is not your master. So let me put that in real talk. Real talk is, your sex drive is not your master. Your physical appetite for food is not your master. Your thirst to be in a relationship is not your master. Your past mistakes or things that were done to you that victimized you in your childhood or your adolescence or your adulthood, those things of guilt and shame, they are not your master. When you come to Jesus, Jesus is your master. He is the one that paid for your soul. He is the one that loves you and is ready and always willing to forgive you for your sins while you are in this process of sanctification. But here's the issue. We have to cooperate with Jesus. Because when I talk about him being your master, listen, don't get it twisted. You were adopted into a family and you were made co-heirs with Jesus, which means you have all the rights and privileges that Jesus has. God has given you an inheritance of eternal life. That is not always equal to material commas in a bank account. What it means is you have a freedom from your past. You have the opportunity to be free from the sins that ensnare you. And you have a freedom to continue to walk in peace with God because you know God and you're a part of the family of God. So the way that we cooperate with Jesus is we got to really examine our heart. You know, I love the hotel room that I'm in. It's fresh. It's real chill. Really cool, nice little shower, good water pressure, soft water. Not like in Cali where it's all hard water, make your hair fall out, like all that stuff. But it's real chill. What I don't have the right to do to my hotel room is make renovations. I can't be like, yeah, that wall, I ain't feeling it. I need to knock this down. Move that people out of that room next to me. I need to breathe a little bit, have my space. I don't like where that toilet is positioned, so I'm going to move it over here. I'm going to knock down this wall to expand the shower so I can watch TV when I take a shower. Like, I can't make those renovations lawfully. If I made them renovations, Campus Outreach going to be like, uh, homie, this is your bill, not ours. Uh, we put you up in this hotel room for two nights. 
This is not your home. Now, if I want to make those renovations at the crib back in L.A., and I'm like, yeah, this wall ain't moving me, or I want to move this, or I don't like that wallpaper and this paint over it, I'm going to do what every homeowner that's a man is going to do. Go ask permission from his wife first. And say, baby girl, what you think about, oh, no, you ain't feeling that? Neither am I. I don't know why. One of the kids put that in my mind, girl. What you think we should be doing, right? But there's a difference from being a homeowner and a hotel tenant. A homeowner, their name is on the deed. They made the purchase. They own the crib. They can make whatever changes they want. So often in this process of sanctification, we want Jesus to be the homeowner, but we want to treat him like a hotel tenant. We don't want Jesus in our bedroom. We don't want Jesus in our kitchen. We don't want Jesus in our attic. We don't want Jesus in the basement. We want him in the living room where everything is nice and clean. When I was little, and I ain't going to lie, even in my adulthood, when I know we're going to have company, I just clean the front room. I clean the bathroom for the guests. And I just kind of hope and pray they don't want a house tour, right? Because everything else is dirty. So I give the appearance that it's all clean and everything is all good. But if they're like, hey, what's this room? Hey, you don't want to go in there right now, right? Don't go in there. That's my daughter's room. <laughs> You're real tall. I don't want her going in there right now. So we make the appearance that because I only want to keep you in these two rooms, I'm going to keep these two rooms clean. Jesus says, uh, baby girl, son, I don't purchase the crib. I make whatever renovations I want to make, okay? And so if I want to knock down this wall, if I want to give these things away, if I want to donate this stuff, if I want to throw this out with the trash, I can do that because I own the crib. It was my blood that was shed. So I need you to cooperate by giving me the skeleton key. A skeleton key back in the homes in the south was the key that unlocked every door to every room. Only the homeowner possessed the skeleton key because you could lock yourself in and lock people out and they couldn't get into certain rooms. Jesus said, when I purchased you, I deserve the right to have the skeleton key. So now I can deal with every room in your heart, which is now my home. He's patient and he's loving. But the problem is we don't trust him. We don't think that he's a good God. We think that he's going to sever relationships that we don't want severed. He's going to destroy the idols that we have found our identity in before we knew Jesus. And he's doing it for our good. Because here's the thing. There's two lies that the serpent told Eve that deceived her that he still tells us today. He ain't doing nothing new. See, if you want to win a war, you got to know the tactic and the, the strategy of your enemy. I'll give you the strategy of the enemy. The enemy is going to give you two things. Number one, he is going to cause you to doubt God's word. He's going to say, did God really say? That's what he wrote up on Eve. He's like, hey, shorty, did God really say you couldn't eat that? Did he really? Now, wait, you know what? Now that I think about it, man, what did he say? Now we start questioning the word of God. When we question the word of God, the second thing is now we doubt God's goodness because that's when the serpent came to her and said, look, I'm, I'm just going to be real with you, girl. This is why he don't want you to eat that fruit because he don't want you to be like him. Girl, he is withholding from you. He's withholding good things from you. See, he, he gave you knowledge of good, but he didn't want you to have knowledge of evil because once you get knowledge of evil, girl, you're going to be like him. And you ain't going to have to obey him because you're going to recognize, please, I got everything you got, God. I ain't got to answer to you, girl. Go and get your fruit. So she ate the fruit. And what's crazy about it, the text tells us that Adam was with her. And I ain't going to front. If I see some snake talking to my wife, I'm going to be like, man, what? All right, let's go. Like, what's this dude? Where'd you get that 22? Hey, look, girl, I'm out here doing me, all right? So, like, 
But the whole thing is I'm like, man, like, why did Adam punk out, man? Why didn't he say, hey, bro, you want to talk? You talk to me. You don't talk to her. Like, none of that went down. He just sat there as a coward, let his wife be deceived, and he deliberately disobeyed God. She was deceived, but Adam disobeyed God. His disobedience spread the disease of sin to our entire human race. That's how we all got infected with it. That's why when the scriptures tell us in Ephesians 2 that we were born dead in sin, in Psalm 51, 6, when David says that I was conceived in sin, every single one of us had sin in us from the time that we were being formed in our mother's wombs. So the reality of being made holy is a miracle that God would forgive us and then work with us. So when God is challenging the idols in our life, it's for our good. But we don't take it that way because we doubt God's goodness. I don't want to let go of this, God, but I'm telling you, that's going to lead you to death. You're not going to flourish in your relationship with me if you hold on to this. Let it go and Cling to me and I will not lead you astray. I will take care of you. I won't lead you where I won't keep you. I'm with you. But we don't believe it. So in this process, we can't discount the holiness of God. Because if he's holy, that means he is perfect in every request that he makes of us to obey. It's always for our good, even when we don't understand. Because he is a good God, incapable of doing anything morally reprehensible. He is incapable of sinning. He will not lead you into sin. When he says, I'm challenging you, give this up for me. It's not so that he can say, yeah, fool, I got you. I was talking to a brother who walked into our church. Dude is like six, not, six, no, 6'11". He's a professional volleyball player. He walked in, and I'm like, dang, cuz, like, you up there. <laughs> like, tell God I said, what's up, G? Like, that's what I told him. He was like, man, you funny, man. So he comes up to me, and he sits in our service at church. And, and we meet, we meet in, in a school in the hood in North Long Beach in a gymnasium, right, a small gym. And um, he walked into this broken-down gym in the middle of the hood in North Long Beach, and he's listening and he walks up to me after the service is over, and he's like, look, man, I'm just going to be honest with you, tell you where I'm at. Uh, a guy that I know in Pennsylvania told me to come to your church because he heard you speak somewhere up in New York one time and said, you need to come listen to this dude talk about Jesus. So I'm here. And I'm like, man, that's what's up. So what, what do you think about God, bro? And he's like, I was raised kind of in a church environment. In fact, the pastor of that church is the one that told me to come talk to you. And I was like, oh, okay. But he was like, I mean, look, man, I, I for real have never lived this. I really don't believe these things. I'm, I, if there's a God, it is what it is. Uh, but I feel like I don't, wanna, I don't even want to acknowledge him because I feel like he's going he's gonna to take something away from me that I really love. And I'm going to be honest with you. I love it more than I would love God. And I'm like, you know what, man, you are very self-aware, bro. I'm like, like. Thank you for being like, keeping it a buck with me, because so often people are like, I mean, I don't know, it's just, oh, I'm so confused. This, this, like, you know, you know where you at, right? And so I'm like, man, that's what's up. So I said, well, man, here, 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 do, 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 do me this favor, bro. Um, hey, tell me the gospel. And he looked at me like, fool, what is you, I mean, he's like, fool, what is you talking about? And I'm like, give me the gospel. Tell me the gospel. What do you think the gospel is? 
And he's like, I don't know, man. I don't even know where to start. And I'm like, that's good because you've given me all truth. I said, well, let me share the gospel. So I told him. Everything I shared with y'all last night, I told him. And this dude broke. He just started crying. And he was like, I really don't care who's looking at me. Can, can we sit down and talk? And I'm like, yeah. So we went outside to this park bench. And he says, I want to believe with my whole heart everything you said is true. I feel like God is calling me, man. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't want to give up my professional volleyball career for God. And I said, that's what it is? No, no, I'm serious. Because listen, it sounds so flippant to me, but his whole identity from high school to volleyball at UCLA to being on the United States professional national team, this dude is like Olympic level. It's not a hobby. This is, his, this is how he pays his bills. He's like, I'm scared that if I give myself to Jesus, Jesus is going to have like a gun, like, fool, come up off that volleyball. Come up off the... But you know what? That's what he was taught to believe. And I said, brother, I said, let me, let me challenge you from a different perspective. I said, have you ever thought about integrating your faith with your professional work? And he was like, what do you mean? I said, if volleyball is where your identity is, yes, I'm not going to lie to you. Jesus wants you to identify with Jesus, not volleyball. Because, bruh, when you retire, you're going to have an identity crisis. When you can't jump and spike and set and run and dive and dig as much as you can now in a few years, you won't know what to do with yourself if volleyball is your identity. So I said, I'm going to be honest with you, volleyball is your idol right now. Your whole world and identity is wrapped up in, in volleyball. But I said, but if you surrender the idol of volleyball and you embrace Jesus, who's to say Jesus is not going to say, I gave you that gift. Use it as a gift, not your idol. And leverage volleyball as a platform for showing my work in your life. And he said, man, I've never heard it that way. And I said, bro, it wasn't until I was in my 30s that someone told me it can be that way. So I said, listen, if God has given you a gift and he's given you a passion and you embrace Jesus and you surrender the idolatry of your gift and talent and it's no longer your identity but your identity is found in Jesus as one who has been made holy, then Jesus could leverage that gift and talent for his glory. And now whether you break your leg or whether you retire, you're not going to be lost because your identity is in Jesus and life continues and your mission for Jesus continues even after your career is over, bruh. And I'm like, at the end of the day, you can still use that gift to coach, to go on missions trips, to be a part of a team that does demonstrations in schools all around the world in order to platform the fact that Jesus is where your identity rests, not in volleyball. I'm like... God can use you in the mission field of volleyball. Because I'm like, bro, how many of your coworkers, so to speak, are living for God? He's like, none. He's like, but then that leads me to another question. I don't want to be that dude that's Jesus juking everybody in the locker room. And I'm like, you ain't got to be Jesus juking everybody in the locker room, bro. So we, we spent the next few weeks talking about, man, can I, can I have a beer with my teammates? 
Can I, can it, man, if, I, if I'm dedicated to waking up to, to running and training on the weights at 5 a.m., but I don't read my Bible first, is that a sin? Like all the real natural questions that, that all of us are asking, he never had anybody walk him through the word of God and say, you know what, that's not a sin issue. But you know what, this is a sin issue. So no, you, you should not do this because here's the scripture that clarifies why God says that is unholy. And as I check in with him on FaceTime, as he's seven months in Tour France right now, playing, playing professional volleyball, I'm checking in with him. How you doing, bro? I'm good. Man, I'm, I'm growing in my identity in Jesus, man. I found a group of people that follow Jesus here, and they speak English, which was a big prayer. I answered a prayer that we had. And he's like, they're challenging me in the word of God. I gave him some of the books that I wrote. And I said, let's talk through these books, man. And he began to process and read through one of the books that I have called DNA, which is basically everything I learned in theology school put in the language of the streets. So now he's understanding justification, sanctification, and glorification when he didn't know them words three months ago. And now he's like, man, God is working with me. I'm confessing my sins. And I'm like, man, you're doing it. You are integrating your faith with your life work and you're pleasing God. You're not bowing to the idol of volleyball, but you're leveraging volleyball as a gift given by the perfect gift giver for his glory and your good. And so as we look at this passage and we see that God can be trusted, all of us were made holy for this reason, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him. God saved you for a purpose, to make him famous. We are the marketing plan for God. It should be our goal to have him trending on a regular basis by expressing his goodness of how he forgave us, how he loved us when nobody else loved us, how he is patient with us and working with us and loving us. That's why Peter says you were made holy. You weren't made holy just to say, I'm holy and look down on people who are unholy. No, you were made holy to recognize I can breathe and exhale, knowing the wrath of God has been removed from me and Jesus' forgiveness has been given to me. Now I am freed up to make the story of my God known everywhere I go. And I can integrate my faith in Jesus with my gifts, my passion, my education, and my experience. Can you imagine how our society could be transformed when we had social workers engaging in the field of social work with all those precious children and adults, people in the mental health facilities, people who are doctors and veterinarians, people who were janitors and baristas and entrepreneurs and artists and, and rappers and film producers and editors and graphic designers. Can you imagine if we flooded the marketplace with people that lived on mission for Jesus and knew their identity was in their Savior and the gifts he gave them were not in competition with their God, but they were platforms to make him known? See, we can't just think mission is going to South Africa or South America or Eastern Asia. Mission exists wherever people don't know God. Mission is your dorm room. Mission is your home when you go back to the crib. Mission is your place of work where you internship. Mission is the team that you're on in the intramural league. Mission may be your relationship. Wherever people don't know God, that's the mission field. It ain't just across the sea, it's across the street. In real talk, America is one of the worst bleeding missionary fields in our world. And we think that because we used to send missionaries back in the 17 and 1800s, that we good? No. People 
who know Jesus from other countries are flooding America to reach Americans with the gospel that our society has forgotten for the past few hundred years. You are needed now, but you won't be utilized until you realize who you are, like what our brother said. I realize whose I am, and that helps me identify with who I am. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. You are the family of God. You are the church. Let us pray. Father, as we prepare our hearts as a posture of worship to express gratitude and gratefulness for all that you've done in our lives, allow my brothers and sisters to have their hearts massaged by these truths and may they express your excellencies and proclaim your goodness as you've demonstrated it in my life and in their life. And if there are any here that don't know Jesus, Father, draw them. And through conversations today, may they exchange their idols for their identity and their Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach.